it was definitely a process. I ended up having four surgeries because of one, <laughs> minimally invasive one, you know, so fibroids can wreak some havoc for women. And that's why it's really important for me to share what we can do, not just for fibroids, but our overall hormonal health, because we know it's an issue with hormones when we have fibroids. Welcome back to the Essentially You podcast, all about reinventing your health with safer, cheaper, more effective natural solutions and powerful lifestyle changes so that you become the CEO of your health. I am your host, Dr. Marisa Snyder. Did you know that 80% of women will experience uterine fibroids by the age of 50? And one of the most common treatments still today for uterine fibroids are hysterectomies. Now, it's no wonder that hysterectomies are the second most common surgery in women here in the U.S., right behind childbirth. Now, I want to quickly take a moment and define what fibroids are. Fibroids are benign lumps or growths that are in the uterus, usually in the walls or inside of the uterus, depending on the type of fibroid you have. They are very common and their likelihood increases with age until we hit menopause. Now, when we hit menopause, estrogen levels drop and those fibroids will shrink and very often they will not continue to grow. About 30% of all women get fibroids by the age of 35 and almost 80% of women, as I mentioned before, by the age of 50. Now that number jumps to 90% in black women. And here's the deal. You may not even know that you have them until you start to feel a fibroid-driven symptom. Fibroids, depending on their location and size, can cause heavy bleeding in about 20 to 30% of the people. And other symptoms include pelvic pain or pressure, bleeding or spotting between menstrual periods, frequent urination, abdominal swelling or discomfort, low back or leg pain, fatigue or low energy from heavy periods and excessive bleeding, anemia, again, because of that excessive bleeding, constipation, and even miscarriages. Now, the most important fact about fibroids is that they need estrogen to grow. In perimenopause, estrogen dominance becomes more common and actually feeds the growth of uterine fibroids, causing them to grow larger and potentially exhibit symptoms. Now, I have talked at great length on this show about estrogen dominance and I recently covered it in a Q&A Friday episode, which was episode 187, which I called, What is Causing My Heavy Bleeding and Migraines and Can Bioidentical Hormones Help Me? Now, this episode explores how hormones change and fluctuate during perimenopause, which can start as early as 35. When estrogen goes unopposed, especially during perimenopause, we experience signs and symptoms of estrogen dominance. And if you think you may be struggling with estrogen dominance due to heavy periods, crazy PMS symptoms, migraines, tender fibrocystic breasts, gas and bloating, weight around the hips and thighs, then it's absolutely worth looking into how to reverse it. Now, I have an entire other episode on actually how to reverse estrogen dominance. It is episode 167, and it's called How to Naturally Reverse Estrogen Dominance, Especially During Perimenopause. Now, the reason why I put a focus on perimenopause is that's where we see estrogen dominance really drive up in many women, including myself. I, I've had estrogen dominance in the past. It's just when estrogen, again, goes unopposed, either due to gut issues, liver issues, or even low progesterone due to high levels of stress. Even thyroid issues can play a role here. So it's important to understand kind of where the root cause for estrogen dominance begins and then get to the root of that and address it. 
So now that you have some awesome resources to go and plug into, I also wanna share a really special gift that I just literally upgraded for you. I just finished my top 11 supplements for hormones guide and the first five supplements are phenomenal and effective at balancing out estrogen and progesterone. They're also effective for combating estrogen dominance. So if you wanna know more about supplements to use 35 and older, this is the guide. These are the best supplements that you can get your hands on. I talk specifically about different types of herbs and vitamins and minerals that can really move the needle for us as women, especially during a time where hormones are fluctuating rapidly. Now the guide is gonna be inside of this episode, which is episode number 200. And just as a side note, I am so excited to celebrate episode 200 on this show today and to highlight Christine Garvin, who's gonna be our amazing expert today on the show to talk about uterine fibroids and particularly to share her story and how she's helped so many women get to the root cause of how their uterine fibroids have formed over the years. This topic is exactly what this podcast is all about. So without further ado, let's dive into this epic conversation on fibroids and discuss natural remedies to reduce them. But before I do, I want to quickly sing Christine's praises. Christine Garvin is a functional health coach based out of Asheville, North Carolina. She weaves together her personal health journey, including a fibroid surgery that nearly killed her with her training in functional medicine, nutrition, and hormones to help women heal their gut and achieve hormone balance. She seeks clients all over the world and she offers self-guided healing programs on her website. She also hosts the podcast, Hormonally Speaking, and she is always in front of functional health leaders, educating about hormone health and gut health. If you would love to know more about her, go to christinegarvin.com. Now let's welcome her onto the show. Welcome to the Essentially You podcast, Christine Garvin. How are you doing today, girl? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited. <laughs> I am so, so excited. I get this question all the time. Women are just, there's so much concern and doubt and misinformation around fibroids. And we're going to be talking about not only how to deal with them naturally, but then when do we need to consider potential surgery or potentially other options less invasive options as well. So I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I have been looking for you to bring on to the show for quite some time. Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts, I would love for you to share kind of that defining moment for you when you knew you wanted to start educating women about what's going on with their bodies, especially in perimenopause and menopause, dealing with fibroids. Well, for me, it took a tragedy <laughs> to, to really clarify, you know, and I think this happens in a lot of women's lives, especially as we get into perimenopause and women start to feel differently than they ever have before, right? Some, I mean, some more and more women are dealing with menstrual issues throughout their, you know, menstrual life, but really perimenopause can throw a lot of women for a loop. I wouldn't say that I knew that I was in perimenopause. And what was interesting was that, you know, I had done training in holistic health education and nutrition in my 20s. And I did that work for a while. And then I um, had always been a dancer. And so I got into teaching dance full time and performing and everything. And um, I won't go into the whole long story of how I figured out that I had a fibroid, but just, you know, to say it was shocking. And I actually found it myself because I could not get my diva cup all the way in um, one month, right? So I kind of like 
felt up in there and was like, okay, there's something in here that, you know, wasn't here before. And this is something that I think women um, face. And I, and I talk to clients about this all the time. If you think something is off about your body, you got to go to your doctor and you got to demand and you got to say, I know something's off, you know, because I went to just get it checked out at first and I couldn't see my doctor right away. So I saw another one and she tried to convince me it was my cervix that I was feeling. And I was like, nope, <laughs> I know it's not my cervix, you know, You're and like, she wasn't uh, unkind, no. right? She wasn't unkind about it, but I was just like, yeah, this is, this is not, this wasn't there before. And then obviously through an ultrasound, you know, we found out that I had one um, that was about six centimeters at the time. So for those that don't know much about fibroids, you know, that's relatively big. You know, it's definitely been hanging out, growing for a little while if it's six centimeters. You know, a lot of women will find out maybe when it's maybe one or two or three centimeters. So for me, it was causing excessive bleeding during my period. Like I went from, you know, pretty normal bleeding to filling up a diva cup in an hour and then it was also it also the location of it it was kind of a joke in my dance classes because we were saying i was growing a tail because it actually was located to where it's pushing out my coccyx bone so at the end of my spine so you know that's one thing that i want women to understand too is that it can misplace things in your reproductive area and cause issues and that's where you start to see women you know being in a lot of pain so found out i had the fibroid And then immediately dived into trying to figure out, well, what can I do about this? What can I do to naturally shrink it? And everything that I read said, oh, once you get over five centimeters, it just, you know, you can't really shrink it. I ended up talking to probably about 10 or 15 women that did what's called a myomectomy, which is, you know, when they go in and they remove just the fibroid or the fibroids so that you can maintain your uterus, keep, you know, all your reproductive organs. For me, that was really important. Even though I don't want children, I really wanted to keep, you know, my reproductive organs. And so I talked to a lot of women that it went fantastically well and it, you know, changed their lives. So I decided to go down that path. And after I had my surgery, which was just a, I I did have to stay overnight, you know, um, with hysterectomies, often they're just outpatient surgeries, which is crazy to me, especially after what I've gone through. (laughs) Would it potentially be because I know that hysterectomies are the second most common surgery for women. The first most common surgery for women is birth. And I, you know, because birth is a quite invasive process whether a doctor's or however we kind of label it as a culture. And I wonder it's because we just do so many hysterectomies that they've got that down to a science. They feel like they have it down to a science. Well, yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's and, easy. yeah. yeah. It's like, yep. We could take this all out real quick. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Don't worry about we, it. We, we got, got it. You. We just go in there, snip, you know, and it's very tragic to me. I mean, I understand the motivation to get women moving after surgery, like just surgeries in general, you know, having people move and blood flow and all that kind of stuff is good. But to actually just have them in and out in a day is crazy to me, you know, and, and I'll explain why in a moment, but mine was overnight. And the next morning, I'll just say that, you know, I, I kind of knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And within two weeks, I could, I had so much pain. I could barely get out of bed. I was calling the nurses, you know, where I'd gotten, I'd gotten the fibroid removed at the premier hospital in the Southeast for minimally invasive gynecological surgeries, right? So this wasn't just like a little podunk place that I went to get this done, right? 
And they kind of pushed me off and said, oh, you know, like maybe we'll try this other pain medication or, oh, scar tissue is just forming. Turned out that I had a massive infection, massive abscess, and I had sepsis at that point because I had been burned in three places in my intestines during that minimally invasive myomectomy. And, you know, this is going back to the point of like having women go in and out. I mean, it's crazy to me because what happened to me is a little extreme. I haven't actually found anyone else that's been, you know, burned in three places in their intestines. But I know a lot of women now that are nicked during gynecological surgeries, you know, and I ended up losing half of my colon and about eight inches of my small intestine. I lost my appendix, you know, everything in that area is gone. And I had to have an ostomy bag for six months to let my intestines heal. And during that time, I I got in ostomy support groups and I realized how often women end up with ostomy bags because of gynecological surgeries. So it's a big thing, you know, and it's not talked about enough at all. It's not talked about as a possibility when you go in for these, you know, simple, quote unquote, simple surgeries. Can you speak to me? Cause I know you've had the opportunity and, and as have I talking to women post-surgery, gynecological surgeries, you know, there's lots of different ones depending on what women are going through. How often post-surgery or even before they get there, that they're something, no inherently something isn't right. What is the propensity of women not being listened to? I mean, I I couldn't even imagine to try and qualify how many. That's the case most of the time, I believe. You know, in our culture, women's pain is not taken seriously. You know, we're thought of as over-emotional. We know that if you're a woman of color, that's even worse that you don't get listened to. You know, I I mean, I had a story with um, a colleague where she was left in the ER for eight hours. You know, it turned out that she had a burst ovarian cyst. And those can be, I mean, life-threatening. Extremely painful, yeah. Yeah, extremely painful and life-threatening. And no doubt because of the color of her skin, you know? And so it's, it's so deep for women. And what I tell women all the time now, if you think even a tiny thing is wrong with you, and I know how it is to be in the place where, I mean, I was in pain. I didn't want to fight for myself or advocate for myself. But just drop the word sepsis because that seems to be the key of getting doctor's attention. Say, you know, I've especially, you know, don't wait longer than three days if you have anything happen post-surgery because that's really when things start to turn, take a turn for the worse, you know? And I was lucky because again, it was two weeks in between my surgery and me ending up in the ER. And, you know, they couldn't believe I wasn't in septic shock at that point because, I mean, bacteria and stool and everything was just dumping into my abdominal cavity and filling that up. Um, so yeah, that's one of the big things with women, you know, I just say, bring up sepsis right off the bat. Cause usually that's going to trigger something different than just saying, Oh, I, I feel pain, you know, cause they can just brush that off. Absolutely. We know historically, and even today that, yeah, the, the whole concept of pain and women in pain is just not well-believed. I've seen it a lot in endometriosis. It seems that the only time where we really care about women with endometriosis is when infertility is a concern. And so I'm so glad you're um, not only from personal experience speaking to this, but then also, you know, we know the research is there, but then we've seen so many other women experience different surgeries, but still it taking forever to get that surgery approved. And then post-surgery, you know, us also not being listened to on the other side of things. Yeah. You know, it's, it's such a, I, I have to laugh at it sometimes because I know women who are in their, you know, late twenties or early thirties and they've just had 
tons of issues, you know, with their reproductive system for a long time. And although I don't necessarily want for them to have to have a hysterectomy, I know that in some cases that is the better choice. And they will not get it because doctors are telling them, oh, you're too young, you're going to want to have kids. You know, it's always putting that down. Even if they say, well, I don't want to have children. It's like, well, no, you're going to want to, right? This is, it's that sort of picture. what it's supposed to be. <laughs> right? And then on the other side of it, when you're in your 40s or 50s, they have to fight for the hysterectomy, you know, like, it, I mean, it, I mean, they're just giving out the hysterectomies left and right, excuse me. And, and so it's just, it's so funny because it, it all does come back to, I think, you know, this idea that women are, our purpose is to give children, you know, have children and beyond that, like our reproductive system makes no difference. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so glad we're having, that's why I'm so happy to be having this conversation, not to say because by any means, does this, this, any of this, it just enrages me most, many, many times I hear these stories, but I know that we need to be speaking up about it because a lot of women, we just, we, we go silent on it. We're not having Absolutely. these conversations. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I interviewed Kelly Garza, who is a steamy chick, if any of you guys have heard of her. And um, she educates about vaginal steaming, you know, and we were talking about the stories that come in of women just um, not being listened to, particularly post-surgery, when it's so, so important to be listened to because of what happened to me, you know, what happens so often. And I think getting these stories out there in a big way so people can understand how much this happens. And that, I hate to say this, but for the most part, the doctors are not held accountable. You know, I was in the place where I wasn't interested in ruining my doctor's life. I know she didn't do it on purpose, but there was nothing around it being held up or, or saying, okay, we messed up or anything like that. Right. There was no recourse for um, the damage that had happened to you due to her burning three different areas of your intestines. And then, then not listening to, and not, I don't know if she knew or didn't know that she did it. Right. We don't, we don't know. Um, You know, probably more than I do. And, and yet um, there was no like follow up or when you were calling a wondering of, Oh, I wonder if that had anything to do with how I messed that up. Right. Well, it's interesting because the ER docs ended up calling her, um, when I was in the hospital because they knew that, you know, obviously that I just had this surgery done. And so, Oh, she found out what was happening with me, you know, but it it was that frustration of like, okay, it had to get to that point (laughs) where I was literally dying (laughs) of sepsis, you know, for, for there to be the thing. And, and again, you know, I don't, I mean, well, I'll never know exactly what happened. You know, my OBGYN, she has the best theory that I've, I've heard, which is that sparks flew off the tool because it's a heated tool that, you know, cuts up the fibroid. And, you know, that makes sense to me in terms of one of the burns was up on my transverse colon, which is for people that don't know, at the top of your colon that goes across and where the incision had been was, you know, down near the bottom of my ascending colon and where the small intestine connects. And, and I had two burns down there, but then I had that one up top. And so, you know, the spark flying sort of makes the most sense, but but we'll never know, you know, and, and unfortunately, in most cases, women don't get any compensation or anything from this happening. And, you know, I mean, not only did I have an ostomy bag for six months, it could have gone worse. I could have had an ostomy bag for the rest of my life. I was actually really lucky that I was able to get a reversal, you know, but I'll still never fully be the same. 
I was going to say, I wanted to just speak into that. I can't imagine, you know, with a big chunk of your small intestines, large intestines, your appendix all out. And as much as they do their best to repair, I can't imagine it's ever felt completely normal for you. Yeah. I mean, I feel lucky having the training that I do in order to work on my gut health and I'll be rebuilding my gut for a long time, but I've because of what I know, I've been able to do more than I think a lot of people that would have been in my situation would have known to do. And I feel bad about that too. I try and support, you know, people with ostomies for whatever reason on rebuilding gut health because it's so, so important. We know for our hormones, for everything, right? Like it's like, if I don't want more fibroids growing, then I definitely got to like be focusing on my gut health. But still, I mean, I will always have tons of scar tissue, you know, even with everything that I've done, I'll have pains there. I've been able to rebuild my core pretty well after time, you know, which is a pelvic floor therapy. I highly recommend for women, for everything, (laughs) but for like everything, like there's no reason that every woman shouldn't go to pelvic floor therapist at some point, but she helped me rebuild my core safely. But, you know, yeah, I mean, they had to cut right down the middle of my body, you know, and and they couldn't sew me back up because of the sepsis. So I just healed with a wound back on. And so everything's changed, not just outside scars, but internally. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much for giving us kind of a you know, window into what that looks like. Even, I don't know when this procedure was, when was this for you? It was almost two years ago. June 22nd will be two years. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you know, I'm probably, I'm really just kind of, I'd say coming to the other side of things. I was going to um, say, yeah, two yeah. years is not that long. Yeah. And, and my reversal surgery was just about a year and a couple months ago. So, you know, it was, it was definitely a process. I ended up having four surgeries because of one, <laughs> minimally invasive one, you know, so fibroids can wreak some havoc for women. And that's why it's really important for me to share what we can do, not just for fibroids, but our overall hormonal health, right? Because we know it's an issue with hormones when we have fibroids. Absolutely. Let's, yeah, let us, let's steer the conversation into fibroids. I just finished um, my manuscript. Um, I wrote a manuscript. I just finished a book on perimenopause and menopause, and there's an entire chapter devoted to this topic. Because most of us, a good like 80 plus percent of us will have fibroids before we're, is it 50 years old or? Yep, 50. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's estimated that 80% of women and up to 90% of African-American women will have them. And for people that don't know what fibroids are, they're, you know, benign or non-cancerous tumors, but they grow like tumors want to grow. And, and um, you know, it comes from the smooth muscle and connective tissue of the uterus, and they can be found inside of the uterus or outside of the uterus or actually halfway in between and halfway out. The location of them will sort of dictate the symptoms that women will have with them. Can you speak a little bit too, when it comes to location, and I know I spent some time doing the research here, um, because oftentimes there's that women may not even notice they have them. Yeah, Um, absolutely. um, Again, depending on location. Yep. Um, and where they're growing, but then they're definitely fibroids that, you know, will start to cause some pretty serious, heavy bleeding or even pain and Mm -hmm. discomfort. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So often, you know, if they're small enough and they're kind of like tucked in the uterus, 
women won't feel them. They're, they're just there. And, and, you know, that 80 to 90% of women that will have them, a lot won't ever know that they have them because they really, you know, they, they show up, I guess, at any age, but it become much more common to show up in perimenopause because of the fluctuations in our hormones that start at that point, right? So, as you well know, um, and I'm sure your listeners know that, you know, our progesterone starts to go down. And for me, I was 38 when I found out I had the fibroid. And that was kind of, over time, I learned, you know, I think a lot of times we think, oh, perimenopause doesn't start until 45 or 46. I wish. You know, right? (laughs) It's like, good story. But really, for a lot of women, their late 30s is when this fluctuation. And, you know, I still had a quote-unquote regular cycle, even though it was becoming like crazy, (laughs) like a crime scene. But it's really with the progesterone starting to shift and then the estrogen. And I think this is such an important thing. And, you know, I'm sure you talk a lot about this in your book, but like dialing in your estrogen levels is just so important and understanding. I wish I had known about hormone testing, you know, like I don't want to say real hormone testing because not to say the blood hormone testing, you know, but you had to fight for blood hormone testing anyway. Anyway, to begin with. Exactly. And that just gives you a snapshot that can be helpful, but it doesn't really tell you the whole story, right? And it doesn't really help you get clarity of what you should do. So, you know, something like the Dutch test is super helpful. I mean, salivary testing is great too, but I love the Dutch because we see how the estrogen is, you know, metabolizing. Is metabolizing. Exactly. And if I had known that before this, I know that I could have made a huge difference in the growth or, you know, diminishment of my fibroid. Because when I took that test after my estrogen, my estradiol was through the roof and I was definitely pushing down, you know, the 4-OH pathway, which is the more um, carcinogenic pathway for, for the Yeah. I was wondering if you were also pushing out the OH-16 I actually wasn't, which was interesting, but because, and, and the reason that that's interesting is because often that's connected to fibroids. Yeah. The proliferative. <laughs> yep, exactly. But I'm also guessing, so I took that, the Dutch probably a year after my surgery. And so a, I had lost so much weight during my surgery. I was down to 91 pounds. I lost my cycle for, you know, a solid four months. So I'm sure that my estrogen shifted all around during that time. So my guess is if I had taken it before my fibroid surgery, the 16-OH probably would have been more, you know, it was going down that pathway more at that point. But it's, it was super helpful to know how much it was going down the 4-OH, you know, and yeah, what absolutely. You felt that. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We speak a lot to estrogen dominance. We speak a lot to liver detoxification pathways here. You know, I find women 35 and older is when we start to see an uptick of more, you know, more estrogen in the system in relation to progesterone. And for a number of reasons, not just because progesterone is that first little hormone to start to move on down, but also stress is playing a role and trauma playing a role and gut health is playing a role. All of those things are playing a role in siphoning off our progesterone. Um, so I find that we start to see issues of estrogen dominance a lot earlier than we, we would anticipate. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, speaks to the world that we live in now. Right. And, and the lives that women lead and I get it. And I, I fully, for me, believe that liver and stress were the, the two main pushers because I did have a really good diet and I did 
take care of my gut really well because I had gone through, I'd say my first health crisis after college where I'd been on three rounds of antibiotics for um, strep throat in college. And that just decimated, you know, my good bacteria. And I had no idea at the time. So I spent a lot of my 20s and 30s really rebuilding my gut. So really, you know, it's interesting because I actually had, and I'm very like in tune with my body. So, I mean, my friends laugh at me because it's like every little thing. I'm like, ah, what's going on? (laughs) They're like, calm down. (laughs) Women are taught to not listen to their intuition and their gut instincts, you know? So to be so in tune with your body, I think is such a big win. But yeah, I'm sure other people, because again, we're all, it's, we normalize us just following the rules or us just kind of going with the flow of things opposed to really touching into that intuition. Um, That's what this whole podcast is about is like, how do we take ownership of of our health when for many years, I remember growing up with my mom and my grandma, my girl, my gosh, my grandmother, they just giving away their health, you know, to their doctors, um, not, not really touching into that, um, that inner pilot light. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's a practice for sure. But once you start doing it and, and you do it for a little while, you can't turn it off. No, <laughs> that light no. is blinking at you, right? So <laughs> Always blinking at you. <laughs> yeah, you're like, ah, turn it off. But for me, I, ha- I actually had pains in my liver at different points before all of this happened. And so now I really understand. I didn't understand at the time just how important, you know, and I, and I haven't taken a genetic test, but my guess is I have some some SNPs and some issues when it comes to detox. Yeah, like a Compt gene mutation or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And women in particular, and our when, especially for women, we just, uh, our livers are burdened and, and no one pays it. No one tells us to pay attention to the liver. Everyone's just like, oh, the liver's doing, she's doing what she needs to do. I'm like, no, she needs help. She needs help. She needs support. She needs daily help. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So so we talk a lot about loving our liver every day because a lot of people, they don't connect the dots, especially when we start to see thyroid issues. I'm like, ooh, we got to look at that liver. What's going on with those conversions from T4 to T3? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And, you know, going back to bringing in the stress component of it, you know, we know that stress impacts our liver. If you look at ch- traditional Chinese medicine, anger is stored in our liver. So much of, you know, women to keep everything together, we have to push stuff down. And our poor liver has to deal with that along with, you know, the xenoestrogens that are our environment. And this is a big thing that I had to get educated on. And a lot of my clients, I I really have to point out that, you know, I think it's kind of known, oh, plastic's not great. You know, BPA, we don't want that. But we don't actually understand how many chemicals are in our environment every day all around us right? The things that we use in our hair, on our face, in our furniture, it's everywhere. It's insidious. And to really have, you know, support your liver to be able to deal with that on top of, you know, the other things that you're putting into your body that your liver has to, to get out. And, and this is me just theorizing. Uh, there is one study that I found, I think it was like a 2009 study around heavy metal toxicity or heavy metals and fibroids. But I think that there's a deeper link between that and fibroids than, you know, than we currently know. But in that study, they did find that, you know, there's a connection. It's not necessarily, you know, the all be end all, but I think that that's something that women should pay attention to also, along with all the other things that they're doing. Mm. 
I absolutely agree. And I'd love for you to speak to, you know, we, we, there was a lot that we can speak to on the liver and, and I, you know, like I said, we do have a, a several dedicated episodes, just connecting the dots to estrogen dominance and fibroids or heavy bleeding, the types of symptoms that we should be looking out for. But I would love to speak a little bit into gut health as well. Cause it's an, I think we're beginning to see that it's all interconnected. I think we're beginning to see that what happens in our gut is absolutely going to impact what happens within our hormones, especially our menstrual cycle. In here in a world where women are finally just barely learning to track their menstrual cycle as a vital sign. And for many women, that being like brand new news, no one ever told them to do anything like that. <laughs> like, wait, say what? <laughs> I thought I was just supposed to curse when my period showed up. Like exactly. that was the extent of it. Um, right. So definitely a lot of things are shifting and, and we see earlier, younger generations really getting educated, a different type of education, even that I grew up with. Like you don't, you don't like your period. You don't like your cycle and take the pill. Like that's, that's, that was the cure-all for me growing up. And so much has changed, but speak to me, you know, I know a lot of us are struggling with our, our digestive health, our gut health. Cause you speak to me, we touched a little bit about the liver and what we can do there, how we can lessen toxins. We can manage stress, lessen our, our sugar intake as well. And stress absolutely co-elevates insulin there as well. But talk to me a little bit about how you have gone to do extensive repair on your gut post-surgery and even post when you were in college and you had the, the three separate antibiotic treatments that you had to overcome or do due to the strep throat that you were dealing with. Well, I've done a lot of things yeah, for sure. sure, but I find at this point for myself and in my training, you know, since then, and also for my clients, like, you know, you got to work from the upper GI down. First and foremost, I will ask people all the time, how's your digestion? I will get the answer. It's fine. I'll say, do you have gas and bloating? Well, yeah. Okay. It's not fine. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. What right. woman doesn't have gas and bloating? Right. And I'm like, I, I get that it feels normal because it's common, but that doesn't mean that it's normal, you know? And so let's talk about what what's going on in your upper GI. So that can mean something as simple as you need to start stimulating your hydrochloric acid because it's just not, you know, there's different reasons I can go into in a moment that that may not be working as well. But one of those is as we age, we just produce less, less HCL, less right? Acid. Yep. And not only do we need that to break down our food properly and to trigger the next stages in our digestion, but it also kills off bacteria that is coming into our body that wants to take over and, you know, and weed up our beautiful garden of, of our intestines. So, you know, getting that HCL up, so whether that's using bitters or, you know, apple cider vinegar works for some people, try that first. And let me put a little footnote to that. If you have acid reflux or heartburn, don't do those things first. Start with healing up the mucosal lining of both your stomach and your esophagus and, you know, using things like um, deglycerinated licorice and things like that, marshmallow root that, you know, to, to help heal that and really get that under control before you start trying to stimulate the HCL. Yeah, just going to ruin those epithelial cells even more. Right. Right, exactly. We don't want to damage things more, but we do want your HCL to go up because, you know, contrary to popular belief, it's not a hot, too high of HCL issue going on. It's a too low of HCL uh, issue going on and things just get, get wrecked if that's going on. So we want to up that. We want to usually support with some digestive enzymes while you're, you know, upping your digestion. And, you know, I mean, for me, I'll be taking HCL and digestive enzymes for the rest me of my too. life. Me too. Always. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, there's just no way around it. Some people I think can heal to the point where they don't need it. But I'd say for the majority of people, just kind of bank on that being part of your, you know, your arsenal that you use on a consistent basis, because it makes a huge difference. I agree. And I think some people always ask, well, how long do I need to do this? I'm like, "Mm, forever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let me just be blunt here. (laughs) Would you like your gut to stay healthy? Yeah. Then we're going to need to be consistent. Maybe if we lived in like a thousand years ago with our clean water and our food from the earth. A serious amount of vegetables and fruits to get raw enzymes all the time. You know, when the average adult is consuming 1.5 fruits and vegetables and in that category is fried potatoes and ketchup, we we definitely need some support on the digestive enzyme front. (laughs) Absolutely. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. So once you've got that in play, um, you know, as a basic for pretty much everyone, you know, check in with how your gallbladder is doing. Like, are you absorbing your fats well? And a lot of times you can tell by, you know, do you have greasy stools? If you have greasy stools, you're probably not absorbing your fats very well. So give that gallbladder support because you're really supporting your liver in the process of that too, you know, and a great food for the gallbladder is beets. So I like to include them in I have a Nutribullet and I'll just mix a a bunch of vegetables and maybe some like unsweetened oat milk or something in there. And that's an easy way to get them in. Yeah. Like beets are great in smoothies. And if you don't like the taste of beets, they just disappear. Exactly. Exactly. It's sneaky in there, you know? Yeah. And then there's also supplements. Yeah. (laughs) There's also supplements if people are really, really against beets, but that's a good start. And then of course, like you can never, you know, look past the microbiome. That is, I think, the epicenter of all of this stuff, right? It's the epicenter of our gut health. It's the epicenter of our hormones in a lot of ways. It's the epicenter of our mental happiness or... Yeah, our emotional well-being. Yes, yes. It could be anxiousness that we're experiencing. A lot of that stems from the gut. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I will, I actually just noted this the other day on something that I wrote that given, obviously, I had a lot of PTSD after my surgeries... But it took a little while for me to really bring back in some of the um, quality probiotics. And, and it was a little tough while I had the ostomy because I didn't have access to my colon, right? right. And so you're kind of like, I don't, is this good or bad? Because you don't know if you want the good bacteria sitting in your small intestine because that could create SIBO. You know, so there was a little bit of touch and go there. But once I was reconnected after a few months, like my anxiety started going down tremendously because, and I have no doubt it's because I was actually getting that good flora back into my system. For me, that was a very like key, like, oh yes, this really does impact us. We kind of talk about it, but this really does impact us on this mental level. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's the, you know, the gut and brain are so interconnected and it, it's hard for us to feel that or know that when we've been told other things for so long, but in a situation like yourself, the physical manifestation of what's happening to you is showing up in, you know, in a, I mean, not to say, I mean, the PTSD had to be so real, you know, but also that anxiousness that we can feel when our gut is not happy. Absolutely. You know, it was my anxiety levels were high. I couldn't turn it off at all. Right. And then that of course is impacting your adrenals, you know, which is the other aspect that we can get here to in a second, but it's all interconnected. And, you know, the last part about the gut and the microbiome that I think is so important, and I know that you um, speak to this too, is, you know, getting that estrogen out of your body, right? So your liver yeah, does you the gotta hard poop work. You got to poop it out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you got to make sure it's like connected in there. And 
and moving out of your body, right? Your liver does the hard work of stabilizing it and, and taking it from being a toxin and making it water soluble. And then it goes into your gut. And if it, you know, if you're yeah, a strobilum, phase three, it's yep. equally as important of a phase as the liver. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people don't understand that element of how your gut and, you know, your estrogen in particular, but all your hormones are connected. It's like, it's so important to move those hormones that we're done with out of our body, you know, especially estrogen because of estrogen dominant situations. I love, yeah. Or we end up recirculating it literally back and then we overburden the liver. It becomes Again. a really nasty cycle. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the liver's just like, wait, didn't I just, right. didn't I just do that? <laughs> Haven't I seen you before? <laughs> do I have to really break this down again? Absolutely. It becomes yeah. a really nasty mess. Um, yeah. You, your liver could be running like a fine tuned machine. You could have dialed that in. Um, but if you haven't dialed in your gut, you're just going to find yourself recirculating a lot of that, those toxins back to the system. Yep, absolutely. I'm so glad you're spending time with us on this. I know people are like, where are the fibroids? I'm like, it's all <laughs> I promise we're having this conversation because these are the things that are going to keep you from potentially developing big fibroids or maybe even fibroids at all. We know that the reason why fibroids, they're not coming out of nowhere for no reason you know, for us as women. And it's really when we, and yes, it's, it's not fair that for some reason progesterone decides, you know, that our bodies are designed in a way that progesterone, which is a, our biggest balancer for potentially unopposed estrogen, which we know is a growth hormone, um, that it begins to start to drop. And for most women, unfortunately, what I see time and time again, there's a lot of other ways that we unfortunately lose our progesterone levels. And so we may start to see this earlier, earlier on in our, you know, for me, the first time that I had had major progesterone drops, you know, significantly low progesterone was in my, my late twenties, early thirties. And I knew then that it was always going to be something I had to keep my eye on because if it was a problem, then it was definitely going to continue to be a concern if I didn't clean up my lifestyle. Right. And I mean, think about how many women that's probably true for that don't even know it. Right. Because extreme PMS symptoms are usually pointing to a progesterone deficiency on some level or, you know, too much estrogen going on. And women will get on birth control because that's what their doctors tell them to do to deal with, with those symptoms, right? So I have no doubt that I probably had estrogen, you know, dominance kind of going on for probably since I was a teenager and those cramps started really bad when I was about age 12, you know, and, and it's like to know these things and to go back to what you were saying about, you know, people are like, talk about fibroids. Like, this is it. This is the stuff to actually stave off fibroids, to diminish fibroids. There's no, people ask me all the time, well, what are, what can I take? And there's no one thing you can take to not have fibroids. You have to work on your gut, you have to work on your liver, and you have to work on your stress levels. And, you know, I, I absolutely believe because of all the things that we face and all of the stress that we deal with and menstrual issues starting so young for so many women, it's a buildup, right? So that's why you see things go so wacky, even younger than we've ever really known before. Mm -hmm. It's beginning to add up much faster. Yeah. And, you know, the trauma component is another thing that I really like to speak to because not just like actual trauma, but emotional and spiritual trauma, and I think are a big part of fibroids. For me, I had continued to push myself in work that needed to be done. And I knew that on a deep level that I was done with that work and that I needed to move into this different direction. But I kept not doing it for all the reasons that we don't, right? We we're, we fear trying to jump into something different. We fear 
for our safety. We fear all of these different things. And that compounded with the stress of, of trying to push, just doing something that I no longer had a love for. And like, putting all these hours into it, you know, it was just like, my body was like, all right, you're not, you're not listening to me. So I'm going to make you listen to me. (laughs) You know, I tell women all the time, like really take stock. Like if you have fibroids or ovarian cysts or any of these kinds of growths, I think that they're a real signal to us to start to be really honest, be kind, but honest with ourselves about where we are in our lives, what we want to be doing in our lives. Are we doing I don't believe we all have necessarily just this one soul's calling, but I do believe each of us have, you know, this purpose or purposes of what we should be following. And our bodies are signals for that if we're not doing that, you know. And then if you have trauma, which A, all of us do, but B, you know, particularly with everything that's going on in the world right now, we really see like the trauma, the generational trauma the genetic trauma that's passed down from generations, you know, I mean, women, we have it deep, black women have it even deeper. And so we have to really work with that, work with a professional that you really trust, you know, to get through that kind of stuff. Because I do think that our reproductive system is always listening and it's always, it's a barometer, right? Mm -hmm. It's a barometer of of our, our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. I agree 100%. Absolutely. You know, checking in and seeing if this is, if, 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 if the things in your life are making you happy, if they're, if they're serving you, if they're not serving you, is the job serving you? I mean, we just got to go a little bit deeper and see, you know, what is our body trying to tell us at that time? And I know that's not always easy to switch and change what we're doing. And so many of us are caught up in obligations of family and taking care of our kids or taking care of parents. I know that it can become more complicated, but finding ways in which that you're focusing on things that you love as well. Yeah. Yeah. Such a big lesson was boundaries that can show up in all parts of our lives. Right. And I think in general, as women, we struggle with setting boundaries because we've been taught to give, 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 and give some more. And then now we're in a culture that's like, oh yeah, take care of yourself by like drinking wine or going and get a, getting a pedicure. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not gonna save you, right? It's, that's not true self-care. True self-care is setting these boundaries in your life. And like you just said, like sometimes that's not possible. Like my dad was in the hospital, you know, in January, in a kind of uh, emergency surgery situation. And I had to go be in the hospital and I had to be the advocate because, you know, things weren't great. And it sucked. I mean, I didn't want to have to do it. But I still, you know, had to create, even in that situation, some boundaries because I knew I was like, I can't, I can't push my body past its limits anymore. That's my biggest lesson from everything that I went through. Like I have to respect my body, respect its boundaries above all else, honestly. I love that. I, I'm so grateful you're saying that today because, yeah, um, and, and we can point to the spiritual when, you know, connection between not having boundaries and what that ultimately ends up leading for us, you know, whether it's fibroids or maybe it's endo or definitely some type of exacerbation that shows up in the body. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also understand, you know, women don't always necessarily, not only do they not feel like they have the time, they you know, may not have the money and, and all those things. And And I get it, you know, and I also understand that once you start making yourself a priority on those levels, like really start making it, you'll find ways. 
you'll definitely find ways, you know, and I, and I'm here to support women and trying to figure that out, you know, absolutely. Cause we, we need help in this, in this process, but it's, it's key if you don't want, and if you've had surgery done to get your fibroids removed and it wasn't a hysterectomy, you're going to have to do something to not have this fibroids grow back. You know? Yeah, let's let's speak into that because I know that surgery isn't always a bad idea. We definitely always want to explore as many natural options as possible and definitely more non-invasive options as well. But let's just say we get to a point where, you know, surgery is on the table, whether it's a myomectomy or I know that there's lots of other newer treatments as well that are available just coming on the scene. But I know that that doesn't mean that fibroids aren't going to come back. Right. Absolutely. That's the thing. And so, yeah, there's the, you know, uterine embolization is another option that it kind of cuts off the blood flow to the fibroids. And I've seen it work for some women and then not so much for others. You yeah, know, I've, I've read a lot that not, not always so much for a lot of, for women. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd say like 50% of the time it seems to help somewhat you know, and, and that does it, sometimes it shrinks a little bit. Sometimes it just doesn't get bigger, but often they'll end up doing a myomectomy or a hysterectomy eventually. I don't know a whole lot about the Excessa, which is an, a newer. The newest. Yeah. I know it's out of Texas and it's kind of going into other States now. I have a friend of mine who's a gynecologist who, um, he is doing those procedures. So I've talked to him a little bit about it and he has done a ton of myomectomies over the years and not a big fan of uterine embolization, but he, so far he's really liked that it's been one of the most non-invasive approaches, but most doctors are not trained on it and it's not always the best option. Right. And I know it uses like radio frequencies. I'm unsure if that includes heat or not in that, you know? And so my perspective always when people ask me about those things, and and I need to find out if it includes heat, but a heat is what did it to me, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're like, I, I don't know. And so I just, I wanna, I'm, always I'm pretty worried. sure it includes heat. Yeah. I'm, my gut yeah. is telling me based on my conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And so just be aware that the same kinds of things could happen. Again, it's not likely that what exactly what happened to me is going to happen to somebody else, but just be really, really cognizant and aware of your body if you do any of these things, you know, and I get it. If you have a 20 centimeter fibroid that is pushing on your bladder is, you know, making exactly incontinence, like that's scary. Right. And then like making you look pregnant because that's what it can do you know, I get it. Like you, you want to get that thing out of your body or you want to, you want to bring it down in whatever way you can. And so, you know, I often tell women, I mean, I'm honest with them because once it gets to a certain size, I mean, it's not easy to shrink them. You know, once it gets say 10 centimeters or larger, I know some women that have, but it's, it's harder, but you know, if it's not causing you extreme pain, can you give it six months to really work on the, you know, hormonal aspects that we've talked about and really get clear on how your estrogen is doing, get clear on how your progesterone is doing, you know, get some bioidentical progesterone in your life if that's like what's needed, you know, really making sure your liver is supported because there is some shrinkage that can definitely happen. And then if in six months that doesn't work and you still feel like you need to get it out you can do it then, you know, again, some women are going to need 
they've been living with it for a long time and they, they got to get it out, you know, and I understand that I would never tell any woman to not get surgery. And I have women contact me all the time because they'll read my story and they're like, Oh my God, I'm signed up for surgery tomorrow. And I just read your story. And I was like, Oh, not good timing, you know? And I just say, go in with the belief that this is going to be amazing and really help you. You know, don't, don't take any of this that you've just read about my situation in with you as much as you possibly can. I love that advice. Absolutely. Christine, you have given us so much to not only consider and really to look into the, what I call the root cause of what's going on with us and what we can be looking at deeper. How can we plug more into you? So you can find me at my website and that's christinegarvin.com. That's a great place to sort of see all the different things going on. I also have a podcast, which I'm excited to have you on. Yes. And that's called Hormonally Speaking. And I'm so lucky to talk to such amazing, you know, women. It's incredible right now, the growth of the sector industry or whatever, and how many awesome, amazing women are out there sharing this information so that we have different choices. You can find me on Instagram at Christine Garvin. Those are best places to kind of tap in. Love it. Well, thank you so much. Not only thank you for sharing your story today, but thank you for sharing, you know, kind of what, what our journeys can look like and what we can do to shift those journeys, what we can do to do things naturally and really giving us permission to really touch in with our, our intuition, like listening to what our bodies need most and listening to the signals that our bodies are telling us and what, what deeper message could that be? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Glad to do it. Yeah. Thank you for coming on. It was such All a right. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk about a very, very powerful story. And I greatly appreciate Christine, not only for sharing her story, but also through her experience to be inspired to do the work that she does today and dig into the root causes for fibroids, given that 80% of us are going to be dealing with it, whether we know that we have them or not. And again, if you don't know that you have them and they're not bothering you, there's really no need to address them. But if they are bothering you, or if you would love to ensure that you're not dealing with estrogen dominance or a wayward, crazy hormone balance journey, then a lot of the recommendations in this episode were were so spot on from gut health to liver health to proper supplementation and what kind of foods we put in our body. I mean, it's all interconnected and it's so awesome to hear another amazing woman, an expert in the field, really talk about the same things that we shine a light here on the episodes pretty much on a week to week basis. Now, if you would love to connect in with Christine and her work or to go check out her podcast, Hormonally Speaking. I will have the links in the show notes for you to go check it out. Last thing I just want to mention is don't miss out on grabbing your bonus top 11 hormone supplement guide. I know you're going to love it. It is so clear and exactly what you need to do to address some of the biggest hormone issues that you're dealing with today or things that you may just want to avoid or prevent. Because here's the thing, in our modern world, whether it's the toxins that we're exposed to or the food that we're consuming or the stress that we're dealing with or just the fact that our hormones are going to change naturally as we enter perimenopause as early as 35 years old, having the right type of supplementation, having the right type of foods in our body, supporting our gut and liver health are all going to be a big part of that healing journey. So go and grab the supplement guide. It'll be in the show notes again for episode 200. And thank you so much for stopping by and listening into the Essentially You podcast Later on this week, on Friday, I am bringing you another Q&A Friday, and I'm diving into a question that I get, I've been getting so much lately. And women are asking me, you know, if I needed to downsize 
what supplements I'm taking. What's the number one supplement you recommend for women? And ooh, it is my favorite supplement. It's a supplement I take every single day. I think it is a must have. It's something that we just deplete a lot of, especially as just doing our day-to-day activities. So if you wanna listen into that episode, it'll be going live this Friday on Q&A Friday. Until then, I hope you're having a wonderful day. See you soon, bye.